Great, let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to this, your word, the word that is authored, uh, written to give us certainty in the things of Jesus, please, would you work that in us today? In Jesus' name, amen. I will indeed uh, read those verses in a few moments, but uh, we'll, I'll read it as we go through. But as we look around the world that we live in, it is very clear, all too clear, that things are not as they should be. Things are not right. The consequences of sin, the Bible talks of sin as being rebellion against God, and the consequences of sin are everywhere to be seen. Just turn on the news. It sometimes makes for rather depressing watching or reading. But it's not even just out there that the problems lie, is it? In our own lives, we find these consequences as well. Relationships, struggle, even broken. Health, physical, mental health uh, struggles. Frustrations in life in all manner of, of reasons. And we are all looking for something or someone to put that right. Now, on a national or kind of global level, I guess there have been various political ideologies that have been suggested of fascism, communism, socialism, humanism, whatever ism it might be, they've all got their suggestions of how to deal with the world's problems. Uh, but on a personal level, again, we, we turn to different things. Perhaps we turn to shopping or alcohol, gambling, binge-watching, whatever it might be. But, of course, we know, actually, if we just think about it, that those things don't deal with the problem. They're just escapism. They're, they're escaping from the problems. But we might turn, perhaps, to a, a relationship, a, a friendship, or, or a romantic relationship. We might turn to a, an exercise regime or, or a career, something. We look to something to, to deal with the problems in our lives. And you will know where you are prone to turn. But whether it is on a, a national or, or global level, or the personal things that we might turn to, those things that we look to just don't hold up, do they? Like ideologies crumble, and in one sense they are replaced by the next idea. Escapism just simply blocks out the problems. People let us down. The Bible tells us that there is just one, just one person, one person who can save from the consequences of sin because he is the one who can save from the, the root cause, from sin itself. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the one. But is he? That's our real question for this morning. But, but is he? Okay, yes, we kind of might agree with that, and many of us in this room would say, yes, of course he is. But when all is said and done, will he follow through? And perhaps this morning you're actually not convinced that he is the one. Well, again, hopefully this morning will help show you that he is indeed the one who can save from sin and all its consequences. This morning we come to an important point in Luke's Gospel, actually. Uh, we come to the last chunk of the first section. Benjamin, do, do we should we switch to that mic? Just every time I look this way. Um, we come to the last section of the uh, first, the last chunk of the first section of Luke's Gospel. Uh, so far, the, the first uh, four chapters really have been dealing with Jesus, uh, pre Jesus, 
Uh, we've just seen him arrive as a child. And now from next time onwards, we're going to be transitioning into his public ministry. So, so far, really, we've been hearing about Jesus. And from now on, we're going to be hearing from Jesus. And this is our kind of transition chunk. Now, so far, we've been told that Jesus is God's son. We've been told that he is God's eternal king. We've been told that he is God's saviour. As I said, we've been told he is the solution to our problems and the problems of the world. But does Jesus back up what has been said about him? Will he prove himself to truly be the one who can do that? We can imagine Theophilus, the, the first hearer, uh, the first recipient of this thing. You know, He too is, has dealt with disappointment. So I, I used a coffee illustration last week, but I'm not actually obsessed with coffee. But we, Amy and I were given some really fancy coffee for Christmas one year. And it smelt incredible. And it came from the uh, fancy London coffee shop. And the first time we made it, and I'm really no connoisseur, but it was horrible. It had a huge build-up and then a massive letdown. And we all know that. We've had the huge build-up from Jesus. Will he be a letdown? Our passage uh, it comes into three kind of chunks. We're going to move quite quickly through the first two. Uh, and then we'll spend a bit more time on the last But you remember where we left off last time? John the Baptist was in the wilderness and he was preaching to uh, all who came out to him saying, repent, you've got to repent to turn from your sins, turn back to God and be baptised. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptised and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Our first point, Benjamin, if we have it up there, is Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. Now, we've been told this. This is not new if you've been with us in this series in Luke. God had indeed sent his angelic messengers and his faithful servants to say, look, Jesus is the Son of God. And those people were no less true or no less important. But we haven't heard it quite like this. This has not happened at any baptism I've been to. The heavens were opened. Now what that looked like, I have no idea. But I think we're meant to see this as a physical, actual thing that the people saw. The heavens opened. The Holy Spirit descends down in bodily form, looking, appearing like a dove, down onto Jesus. And that didn't mean that Jesus wasn't full of the Spirit already, but in the Old Testament, it was the sign of a divinely appointed leader that the Spirit was on them. And so here's this visual sign for the people there. And then a voice from heaven, and now again, this doesn't happen often, well, it doesn't happen often in the Bible. So this is an important moment. And this voice in verse 22 says, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God, in in a rather dramatic, impressive fashion, puts his stamp of approval on Jesus. Now the original hearers who have been significantly more familiar with the Old Testament than us, 
as he heard those words, you are my son, with you I'm well pleased, would have kind of had their, their Old Testament alarm bells going, ding, 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 ding. We might need to do some of the work. Firstly, you are my son. Back in Psalm 2, don't worry turning it to it now, but you can later. Back in Psalm 2, God says to his anointed king, you are my son. The king who the whole world is to bow down and submit to, says, you are my son. But secondly, uh, if I have the next slide up here, in, in Isaiah chapter 42, uh, this section in Isaiah is, is looking at this servant who is going to save the people through suffering. And this is what uh, we read there. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations and so on. And so when we hear these words, we're saying Jesus is this king. Jesus is this servant who is going to save by suffering. God booms down from heaven and says, here he is. Doesn't come any bigger or better endorsements than God opening the heavens, coming down in the spirit, something like a dove, and the voice declaring him to be. But there is one, one little big question that is worth thinking about just in these first couple of verses. Is that why did Jesus get baptised? So we saw last week that the baptism was for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus had no sins for which he needed to repent of or needed forgiveness of. So what's going on as he is baptised? Well, yes, he is the sinless son of God. But he identifies with sinful humanity. The sinful humanity he's come to save. But by being baptised, he's showing his commitment on becoming one of us. He is, as it were, stepping into our shoes. And that choice of identifying with sinful humanity at his baptism was a choice that ultimately led to the cross. You see, here at the baptism, he was stepping into our shoes to experience what pictured death. But later, Jesus would experience not just what pictured death, but death itself in the place of his people. You see, Jesus identifies with us having become one of us. And that's the point, really, from our, our, the second section, which is this genealogy. Here's our second point, Benjamin, please. Jesus is the human son of God. So you can see from verse 23 through to verse 38, a genealogy of Jesus. Uh, I'm just going to read the kind of selected highlights of it for us. This is why I'm reading. I didn't want to put a Kenneth through this to get all the names. So uh, you can thank me later. I was going to read a few selected highlights. So let me read from verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, and the son of, the son of, the son of. Look down to verse 27. The son of Joannan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel. Remember those from Haggai a few, uh, a few weeks ago as Mark uh, preached to us? Come back down to verse 31. The son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Great King David. 
the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Remember Boaz and Ruth. Come down to uh, the end of verse 33. The son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And now down to verse 37. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Have the next slides. Uh, family trees are kind of becoming uh, a little bit kind of popular these days. You've you got the TV program, uh, Who Do You Think I Am? That's what I think it's called, Who Do You Think I Am? Um, and again, just this week, actually, I saw a number of, of different forms, adverts for the website Ancestry. It, they, they're becoming very uh, familiar. The, the idea is that by finding out about our relatives, we kind of find out something about ourselves, about who we are. And so by looking at Jesus' uh, descendants, his genealogy, actually we do see something of who he is as well. And this genealogy draws us back to two very significant people who I mentioned there. Firstly, to David, the great King David. And also to Abraham. Abraham who was to be the source of blessing for the world. Jesus descended from David, the great king, and Abraham, the source of blessing for the world. But more than that, there's one big final uh, line that Luke draws for us. Uh, for, if you're uh, familiar, if you, you're reading your Bibles a lot, you may notice that this genealogy is different from the one that we find at the beginning of Matthew. There are a number of differences. Firstly, there are some differences in names. Now, I think that can be accounted for by the practice of Leverite marriage. Don't worry if you don't follow this. But in the Old Testament, if uh, a man died, his brother was required to marry his wife and to try and uh, bring her a son. So that family line would continue. Uh, but that first son was in, his, was in the deceased's name, as it were. And so when you come to a family line, you, you could have people who had two fathers. You had your kind of biological father, well, sorry, your uh, father who had died, and then your biological father. And so I think the net differences in names can be accounted for with that. But there are some very deliberate, specific differences as well from Matthew. Matthew and Luke have their genealogies the other way around. So in Matthew, um, you, start, you end with Jesus, whereas Luke uh, starts with Jesus uh, and so puts emphasis actually on what we find at the end. Uh, and also, at the end, we find a chunk of names that aren't, don't appear in Matthew. And it's all to draw, us, uh, draw our attention to what we find in verse 38. Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke is drawing our attention, he's drawing that line from Jesus through to Adam, the first man, the first human. You see, there are two who could be legitimately described as the Son of God, who didn't have biological fathers. Adam and Jesus, we saw at the beginning, who supposed, as was supposed to be the son of uh, Joseph. There are two that have the, the Son of God. And so we're meant to be seeing, right, Adam, Son of God, Jesus, Son of God. Adam, Son of God, Jesus, Son of God. So keep that comparison in mind as we now move into the next verses. So chapter 4, uh, I'm going to pick up from verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. 
And when they were over, he, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. We'll read the later verses uh, as we come to them. But as we have the next slide here, the final point we see here is that Jesus is the Son of God who didn't fail the test. Jesus is the Son of God who didn't fail the test. So we've got, right, Adam, Son of God, Jesus, Son of God in our minds. We're meant to see that comparison. And then so when we see Jesus, uh, when we see the devil tempting, personally, attacking uh, in a verbal manner, our minds are drawn back to the fall, to Genesis chapter 3, when the devil, Satan, tempted Adam. Adam was tempted to eat the fruit that God had forbidden. And Adam gave in so very easily. The first Adam, the first son of God, failed the test. But these verses also put another comparison into our minds. So the language is screaming out with references to, uh, the, um, to Israel in the Exodus. So look, having crossed the, uh, the Jordan, sorry, but by the Jordan, in the wilderness, 40 days, hungry, our minds immediately jump back to Israel who crossed over the Jordan, who were in the wilderness, not for 40 days, but 40 years, and so often hungry. You have the, the next verse, uh, sorry, next slide, please, Benjamin. Um, we just see here just a couple of references in the Old Testament. Again, uh, Benjamin, can we have the next slide? Thank you. A uh, couple of references here of where Israel was described as God's son. And uh, Israel, the first Israel in those testing in the wilderness, were no more faithful than Adam. They failed the test too. When they were hungry, rather than trusting God, they grumbled. See, the first son of God, Adam, failed. Israel, the second son of God, failed. Will the third son of God, will the, the, the second Adam succeed where the first failed? Will the new Israel be faithful where the first rebelled? And here we see Jesus temptation. Being tempted by the devil. Now that idea might be completely preposterous to you, the idea of the devil or Satan, but actually in the Bible we, we see the devil to be a real spiritual being. And here he tempts Jesus. And we are, three of them are, are recorded for us. So let's look at the first one again, verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the son of God. Now, I don't actually think he is questioning Jesus' identity. In the Gospels, we find that the evil spiritual forces recognize Jesus far quicker than anybody else. I think the devil knows that Jesus is indeed the son of God. He's not questioning him whether he is the son of God. But to put it rather crassly, he, he's tempting him to be the bad son of God. It's kind of, I think it's a bit like this, that if you are God's son, why are you hungry? What's, why are you in this situation where you haven't eaten for 40 days? Surely you deserve better than this. 
Look, use your power. You're the divine son of God. Use your power. Click your fingers. Turn this, bread in, uh, this stone into bread. And I think this temptation, this is real, right? He's not eating for 40 days. It's the understatement of the century when it says, and he was hungry. And Luke draws our attention to that. I, mean, I can't even imagine that kind of hunger. And why not make bread? Right? Later in his life, Jesus uh, miraculously uh, fed 5,000 people, over 5,000 people with bread and fish. Like, he could do it. So why didn't he? Well, Jesus took on humanity with all of its limitations. The question was, would Jesus trust God to provide for his needs? Or would he do a little conjuring trick to satisfy his own urges? And so see how Jesus responds, verse 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes scripture. It is written. And he, he quotes scripture from Deuteronomy uh, in chapter 8. And it's from when God spoke to his people in the wilderness and had provided them manna. He provided them bread in the wilderness. And Jesus quote, it goes back to that time, quotes that, and says, no, man does not live on bread alone. And in fact, the next line says, but on every word of God's. Temptation 2, let's read on verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give, you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The, the devil takes him up and in this, this moment of time shows him look, all the authorities in the Roman Empire and, and all of those ones, and I, I think perhaps quite, could well be kind of from all time, all these, these authorities, all these empires, and says, look, all the glory of this will be yours. Just worship me. Now we might question, does the devil have the authority the ability to do that. I think we're meant to say yes. Now, Jesus doesn't say, don't be silly, you can't do that. Now, actually, the picture we get in the, in the Bible is actually under God's ultimate sovereign authority, the devil has been given real power. Uh, and this, this is real, the, the real bite of this temptation is actually that the devil offers Jesus what is rightfully his and what he is going to have. We've seen that predicted earlier. Look, uh, Jesus is going to receive his, the throne of his father David for all, for all eternity. But the devil offers it to him right now. Worship me and all this authority, glory, power will be yours right now. He's tempting Jesus to have the crown without the cross. Have the crown but without the cross. You see, Jesus' path to the crown must lead through the cross. And the devil is tempting him to take this shortcut. Have the glory without the suffering. Just worship the devil. It, is, it isn't an overstatement to say Jesus, uh, our entire salvation rests upon chapter 4, verse 8. Jesus again says, It is written, 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, quoting Deuteronomy, at this time, chapter 6, verse 13. Temptation 3, we'll read on from verse 9. And he took him, took Jesus, to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, I mean, this is the ultimate diabolical technique. The devil quotes scripture at Jesus, misusing and twisting Psalm 91. He kind of took him up to the, this is a kind of image of what the temple might look like, took him up to the top and said, go on, just, just jump off. Remember Psalm 91? God will send his angels and we kind of be lowered in this kind of chariot of angels. You won't, nothing will come to harm you. And wouldn't that be impressive? I mean, think about the, the kickstart to Jesus' ministry, right? We jump it off the temple and angels kind of lowering him down. You're the son of God. God will protect you. But what he's really saying is, look, take charge. You're the son of God. He's going to look after you. But you see, if Jesus did this, well, he, he's taking... To taking these things into his own hand, whereas rather Jesus has come to do his Father's will rather than making his Father do his own. And so verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, again, it's written, in, it's in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. See, the devil tries to get Jesus to misuse his abundant power. He tries to get him to fast-track himself to his rightful position. He tries to get Jesus to abuse his father's protection. And I think we're meant to see many others in these 40 days. And Jesus didn't fail the test. The devil's temptations are exhausted for now, we see in verse 13. But there is that little ominous note. He's going to be back. He departed from him until an opportune time. But we now know, having seen Jesus here resist these temptations, we saw at the beginning the Father is pleased with the Son. And now we see here that the Son's ultimate desire is to please his Father. He will trust his father. He will worship his father. He will do his father's will. Jesus submits to God alone, worships God alone, trusts God alone. Jesus stood firm. He is the son of God who didn't fail the test. You see, I think the devil intended this as this kind of testing, this weakening, perhaps even this defeating of Jesus right at the outset. But instead, we see that this testing proves Jesus' identity. It proves his ability to save. It might seem like the devil's kind of launched this surprise attack, you know, right, start the ministry, let's get in there. But actually, if we look closely, it's God who has took 
um, the initiative here. Uh, have a look down again to verse one and Jesus, uh, chapter four, verse one. Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And Jesus goes. The, the initiative here is actually taken by God. Jesus steps up and takes on the devil right at the start of his ministry. Have you seen one of these programs like yeah, SAS? Are you tough enough? These kind of things. They, they put you through the, the kind of really intense situations to try and dis- find out about the people, what they're made of. Well, here's Jesus in the most intense of situations, the hardest of environments, the most brutal of temptations. And he didn't fail. Proves that he is able to save. All that we have heard of Jesus said in these first three, four chapters of Luke is true. He won't let us down. Now, people often will read these verses and and try and draw out help for how that we too can fight temptation. And I think we can indeed learn, okay, right? Knowing scripture, meditating on scripture, quoting scripture is a brilliant thing to do in the face of temptation. But Luke doesn't record these events for us to know for that we would know how to give into temptation less. Luke recorded these things for us to show us that Jesus didn't give into temptation at all. Jesus doesn't stand in the wilderness, as it were, as an example. He stands as our saviour. Jesus identified, became one of us. Jesus identified with us. And unlike us, all, he didn't fail. And his obedience, his trust, his wholehearted service of God ultimately led Jesus to the cross where he made the ultimate victory over devil as he defeated sin, Satan, and ultimately death again as he then rose again. He dealt with sin, paying for that, dealing with the penalty, and then rising again, defeating death. You see, there is no other saviour who is qualified to deal with with our situation. Because he is the only one, the only one who can save us from its root problem, sin itself. Anywhere we, else we look is ultimately going to disappoint. And so this week, when you turn on the news and you're, you're tempted to despair, uh, or maybe you're not tempted to despair, maybe you go, oh, the G7 summit, hopefully some good will come of this, and, and hopefully it will, right? But ultimately, they can't deal with the world's problems. Only Jesus can. And when you're you're very aware of those problems in your life, all the consequences of sin here, don't turn to anything else other than the Lord Jesus, who is the one who can save because he didn't fail the test. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for all that you've revealed to us through this first section of Luke. Thank you for all the wonderful things that we've seen of Jesus throughout are indeed true. That Jesus is your beloved son. He's your beloved son who didn't fail the test. Like Adam, like Israel, like every single human being, he stood firm. Thank you that he is indeed that saviour and pray that we would only and always look to him. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.